thinking at the moment is that we want to give 15 or 20 minutes actually this evening to beginning to explore the landscape of Upeka or equanimity because we do want to allow some time for questions or reflections realizing we didn't even have a second pause this afternoon. So the place, the area we thought to start was equanimity in relationship to Vedana and the processes, the psychological emotional processes that are triggered by Vedana. Remembering the hedonic tone of all experience, the pleasant, the unpleasant, and that which is neither. In, in the Buddhist teaching of world construction, this is actually very, very important. If you think of a simple formula that upon contact, contact and feeling, okay, contact the meeting of the sense door with the sense impression and the knowing of that. So the eye and the sight and seeing, the ear and the sound and hearing. And of course, in the, in the Buddhist description of the sense doors, the mind is the sixth, treated as much as a sense door as any other. So if we think of this kind of like core formula, that on contact there is feeling, feeling, craving, aversion, leading into grasping and leading into becoming. This is a continuum. It is a process that can happen a thousand times in a single day. And the way that Vedana becomes a trigger, really, for a kind of domino effect, a chain reaction, not Vedana in itself, of course, but our reactions to Vedana, the liking or the disliking. You can play that out in in a whole lot of inner scenarios. Um, You know, you hear... The ear hears the sound of the snowplow sitting here with your eyes closed, you know. If you want to get out of here, it has a pleasant Vedana tone. Um, you know, which lead, can lead, with, and without due attention, to, to craving. Oh, leaning forward into the next moment, imagining what comes next. So excited to be going home. In fact, I'm really, I am really excited. That's the becoming part. That's a world construction. It's a world of experience construction. You might sit and quietly in here, eyes closed, hear the same sound. Perception arises, identifies it. Snowplow. There's a hedonic tone. If you're oh snowplow, you know, interrupting my cliffhanger enlightenment moment in a <laughs> aversion, I don't like this, you know, becoming, you know, I'm so upset. That's, that's a world construction. These world constructions happen a thousand, tens of thousand times in a single day and actually describe the ways that we get knocked off balance. Now, clearly it is not actually the sound that knocks us off balance. It is the way in which the sensory impression sets in motion a process of construction. 
And in a way, this is event making. You know, I've made an event out of a sound. So if you think of a single day, you know, you know, our mind, you know, our body, a constant state of process, sensory impressions arising and passing, flooded by them every day. And then there is a way in which there is this injection, we might say, injection of reaction through the mechanisms of craving and aversion, magnifying into clinging, magnifying into becoming. And it's almost freeze-framing a process. So something is plucked out of this endless stream of process, kind of interrupted, and it becomes an event. And you can see psychologically, emotionally, how we kind of move from event to event. That's often how we describe our lives, you know. I'm happy, I'm sad, I, you know, I felt this, I felt that, you know. I, I'm, I'm excited, I'm fearful. It, it's all the kind of event-making. So, Upeka, Upeka is, is learning a great deal about non-construction, actually. About not building. I think I have something here if I... I'll find it in a minute. But so Pekka is is actually learning about how to attend. It's it's a way in which Pekka and mindfulness are so closely interrelated because learning to attend to to the contact moments and the reactions that arise. And rather than following into the reactions, which become a process of world building and event making, it's actually quite simple, isn't it? A sound is a sound. Sensation is a sensation. A thought is a thought. Okay, I want to give you an alternative model. Christine has given you one of the models that involve um, Vedana, involve feeling. There is an alternative one, which I ran through very, very quickly. You probably didn't um, get it the other day, but I ran through it very, very quickly in something I was saying. And it goes like this. There is a whole chain where we build up um, a world. Uh, Interestingly enough, when the Buddha uses the term world, he doesn't mean anything out there. He means what we build up for ourselves, what we construct for ourselves. He never uses a sense of the... He never uses the word loka, which is the Pali word for world, He never uses it in the sense of being anything external. It's always what we are creating um, that we use it. We're world-building continuously, and I think that's the sense of what Christina was talking about. But there's an alternative model which runs like this. Out of an object, a sense organ, and a consciousness, there arises contact. Out of contact arises feeling. Okay, Vedana, yet again. Out of feeling arises perception. Out of perception arises thinking. Out of thinking arises proliferation. And we could go on. Um, But I think we'll stop at that point. Because one of the forms of proliferation is craving. Another form of proliferation is the self. Um, I could go on. It gets more depressing. (laughs) Um, 
But what we, what we see here, interestingly in this chain, I'll just run through it again, I won't do the first three, but there's contact, feeling, perception, thinking, think, sorry, thinking and perception, proliferation. Out of that, the stages, the first two stages, contact and feeling, are neutral. Yeah. There's no self involved. Actually, we don't actually have any control over Vedana. I don't choose the Vedanas I have. Yeah. There often appears to be some kind of volition in this, in the way it's spoken about, as if we somehow choose the Vedanas we have. We don't. It's what comes to us. It's the way all of our experience is toned. I don't choose um, the unpleasant feeling that I have when I see a repulsive sight. I don't choose um, the pleasant feeling that I might get when I put my hand on something nice and soft and silky. Yeah. We don't choose these. These come to us automatically. So Vedana has no choice in it. It's not under our control. This is actually, as some of you will know, this is part of the personality aggregates and is actually a kanda. It's the second of the kandas. One of the defining characteristics of the kandas is they're not under our control. Yeah. This is the reason why they're not self. Is because if a self was involved, it would have some degree of control over this. So that's one point I want to make really, really strongly. We have no choice about this. Vedanas are coming to us all the time. I am not choosing pleasantness and unpleasantness and indifference to any of this. It's just the way it happens. It's the way it comes. If I put my hand on a hot ring and I get burnt, uh, the unpleasant Vedana arises, unless I'm a masochist, is just what arises. After that, the thinking and perception and the proliferation, there is all self involved in that. And this is the construction that takes place on it. So when we're talking about upeka, we're talking about something which is in some ways interrupting the, the world construction that we're engaged in. Now, think of what arises out of the feeling of pleasantness and unpleasantness. And this goes back to Christina's model. Out of the pleasantness and unpleasantness, there is reactiveness. Yeah. We go towards generally the pleasant, and we move away from the unpleasant. This is actually what the defining feature of tanha is. This is the defining feature of what we usually translate as craving. In that, it's Jaina's face. It looks in two directions. It's the craving to avoid as well as the craving to have. Now, that is what we have the choice about. Whether to go into the whole field of craving and proliferation and the, basically the self-building process that we can engage in. Upeka is there to interrupt that. It's that which stands steadfast in the face of the pleasantness and the unpleasantness that is constantly arising in experience. Now, being the human beings that we are with the minds and bodies that we have, we cannot avoid it. It's not as if we can somehow step outside of Vedana. Vedana is an impersonal process. It's just part of our, part of our psychophysical mechanism, part of the way that we're hardwired. We cannot step out of it. What we can step out of is the reactiveness that is, in some senses, the next stage. 
So the meditative process, the practices we engage in, the mindfulness which is being encouraged, is to interrupt that process and to start to sow the seed of upekka into the gap between the rising of feeling and almost the automatic arising of tanha afterwards. This is, this is your chance of liberating yourself from reactiveness. It goes very quickly. <laughs> A couple of um, teachings from the Buddha when he talks about this. You know, he says on contact, the world arises, the world of experience, remember. That the wise seek to understand contact. And the unwise pursue it. And in, you know, and actually talking more about this, you know, that, that those lines in the Buddha that are all experience, world of experience, right? Led by mind, preceded by mind, made by mind. With our thoughts, we make the world, and all that we are arises with our thoughts. There is something, it obviously takes considerable amount of mindfulness to be present close to those moments of the world arising. But this is what the practice asks of us, and this is what Upeka asks of us. Um, so often we mistake our world of experience for being the world. And that is because we are so identified in a way, sort of so enclosed by our world of experience that we cannot discern the difference between the world as it is and our world of experience. And so enormous authority is given to our world of experience. You know, my world of resistance or fear or likes or dislikes or preferences, we somehow, I think, I think someone put it once, we somehow assume that our mind is a mirror accurately reflecting the way the world is rather than actually seeing that our mind is actually creating that world. And this is where we get into the world of, you know, individuated worlds, you know, my worlds, which by nature actually are out of balance, are subject to, are, are vulnerable, are things to be defended, you know, my preferences, my likes, my dislikes, my world view is no different than my personality view, which is quite useful to see. You know, when we go out and say, well, the world, you know, is just, it, it, it's a grim world. Huh. May have something to do with my personality view. So understanding this world of experience is, is, is actually what much of the Dharma is about. It is actually kind of tracking back. But I think the thing with opeka and equanimity is it, it's never too late. That's always the saving grace. It's never too late 
You know, there may be many moments we're not present at the moment of contact. And we may actually be startled into wakefulness just by surges of craving and aversion. Well, it's not as if then that's, a, you know, too late, the ship's sinking, you know. <laughs> it's actually what does a pecker mean in those moments? What does equanimity mean in those moments? Whether we actually feed the aversion and the craving through the proliferation, or actually whether we learn actually that that too is actually present, available. We may not even really notice even the craving and aversion till we get actually to this terrible state of contractedness, you know, where there's clinging and grasping. Still not too late. If you've noticed it, it's not too late. You know, if there's enough mindfulness to notice it, it's never too late. Okay, that is what the opeka, what does it mean to stand in the midst of that? We may not even, even that we may not notice. We may wake up at the moment of becoming when we start having these repetitive thoughts about who I am. Still not too late. If there is enough sati, if there is enough mindfulness, we ask ourselves what is it is to stand in the midst of that sense of becoming. And in those cases that Christine is talking about, those moments when we do realize that we are, for example, prey to the winds of whatever the Vedanas are arising and the constructs that we build on that, and the moments when we do realize that, that's a mini-liberation. That's when we unbind ourselves from habit patterns. When we cease to be again bound to those behaviors which simply pushes and pull us. If you think about it, this is the ultimate Pavlov's dog. You know, we're the ultimate Pavlov's dog in the sense if something nice happened to us, there we are. <laughs> Salivating. <laughs> if something unpleasant happens to us, <laughs> we're slinking away from it. Um, and I'm kind of joking about this just to make the point that, of course, that's actually a lot of what human behavior is. It's simply this reactiveness to the pleasant, moving towards that which you'll want, which you want, moving away from that which you don't want, you know, seeing the thing in the shop window that you desire, and there you are, you know, just enthralled by it seeing the thing which, or the person walking along the street who you don't want to know, moving away from it, unpleasant Vedana. You know, all of this actually denotes lack of any freedom. All of this actually denotes, in a way, the kind of prison house that we can reside within, but we don't have to reside within. As Christina rightly says, any moment is a moment when we can actually break that chain as long as we start to deconstruct rather than construct and see the Vedana as Vedana. We go back to the Satipatthana Sutta, the refrain that runs all the way through the Satipatthana Sutta, but particularly here I'm going to emphasize, is to see Vedana as Vedana. Almost tautological. Yeah? To see Vedana as Vedana. In other words, don't see it as anything else. A sensation is a sensation whether that be a mental sensation of unpleasantness or pleasantness, or whether it be a physical sensation of pleasantness or unpleasantness. The story has to end there. In fact, there is no story. <laughs> the story actually begins when we start the construction after Vedana. Yeah? 
Equanimity, as I said before, is standing steadfast in the face of the, the tendency to want to then to build story immediately, yeah, to jump into uh, constructing, to make the story of unhappiness or happiness or whatever it might be, uh, the vast edifices and narratives we, that we reside within and believe to be true. You remember, trust me, I'm telling you stories? Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's that whole process. Um, we believe those stories. We believe the constructs. We actually believe the proliferations. Yet, if we go back to the Vedana, the Vedana is just simple pleasantness or unpleasantness. It is nothing else. Okay, that, that's where we're going to um, stop this piece this evening and actually make some time for any questions or reflections. Yes. Yeah, it's restraining and yeah, re- restraining and abandoning unwholesome mind states means complete recognition of them. It doesn't mean inhibiting them. To actually abandon something, to actually see it very, very clearly, is what's required in this. To know the un- you know, almost equivalent of what I'm just saying about uh, feeling. To know the unwholesome state as the unwholesome state. To see the tendency for the arising of an unwholesome state of mind given a certain situation. So rather than inhibition or repression, what's involved in here is complete acknowledgement of where the mind is likely to go or where the mind is tending to go with the arisen state. So you see it absolutely clearly. There is no inhibition to this. There is no repression to this. There's no point in that. You can't really abandon something half-seen. You can't really restrain something which is not really known. So it's actually knowing this and knowing the force and knowing actually the potency of unwholesome and unskillful states of mind. And you really have to know that completely. Um, So if we're involved in inhibition, if we're involved in any repressive activity, in a way it's going to come back to haunt us. No, not at all. Yeah. This is this is knowing it without proliferating it. Yeah. I think you've identified that quite clearly. <laughs> um, when you find yourself doing that, it, it's, it's actually better to go to a foundation of mindfulness that's more apparent to you because it's like kind of running ourselves into a, into a confusion proliferation. 
you know. I mean, I think it's, it's so interesting. I mean, Vedana can be very, very strong and unmistakable, right? And it can be quite subtle, and in some weird ways, at times it can feel quite mixed. You know? Something like grief can have a, a kind of strange mixture of Vedana in it. You know, of being unpleasant, the, the painfulness of it, and yet a kind of poignancy, where there can be a kind of sweetness at times in it. But I don't think, I, I think you've got it exactly right, you know. Don't make it more complex. I mean, certainly notice the times when it's actually quite evident. There's often many, you know, I think we can make more complexity than need be about a lot of things. I mean, it's often much, you know, if you stroke the back of your hand, you know, it's quite pleasant. You know, it actually has that. If you pinch the back of your hand, it changes into something different. If you do neither, it's often living in that world of neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So just, I think just being mindful of it when it is evident, having a kind of an open question around it. You, know, you have plenty of other foundations of mindfulness available to you, and Vedana will start to come through. One of the things I often say when um, teaching Vedana practice is when you're doing something like scanning the body, looking for Vedana, is if you get into thought about it, just move on. If you're thinking, is this pleasant or unpleasant, it's actually not Vedana. Vedana strikes you immediately. It might be subtle, um, but if you're actually having to get into thought processes about it, just move on. Yes, the classic, the classic one of uh, abandoning unwholesome states when they arise is to actually turn the mind towards the wholesome, is actually to redirect it. So, for example, if thoughts of anger, of hate are present, then you try to bring to mind, for example, uh, kindness, friendliness. You bring those to mind. If, for example, then I'll give you a very strong one, if desirous thoughts, lustful thoughts arise, then you turn towards the repulsive. Yeah. So it's almost like you're always antidoting the actual unwholesome state of mind. Um, you're not dwelling with it, you recognize it fully before you apply the antidote, and then you almost antidote it by actually developing the opposite state of mind, or at least trying to recall it. That's what I say at the very least, and I think that's probably most of what we're engaged in in the early stages is just recalling, for example, friendliness, recalling metta, recalling karuna, in the case of you know, dealing with, say, with um, ill will arising in the mind. Um, so you're always applying an antidote. I'm sure Christina's got something to say about this as well. Well, there's one of the discourses in the Middle Length sayings where it, it, the Buddha actually goes through a whole list of ways of working with or practicing with unwholesome states. And they're not about practicing with wholesome states. It's that, it's that, that domain of, 
of effort. And I think it's very clear in this discourse how the Buddha recognized the very stubborn and intractable nature of some of these patterns, you know, um, the repetitive nature of them. So I'll go through the list, and, and um, I might miss one or two steps out, and John can add them. So it begins actually by be mindful of what's going on. Know what's going on. And then the, the Buddha goes on in his teaching to say, and if it still arises, you bring in the factor of investigation. What is this? You know, what are the conditions for its arising? What is its nature? How am I relating to it? Then he says, if it still arises, um, cultivate what's missing. That's exactly what John was saying. Cultivate what's absent. You know, so if there's a lot of aversion, aversion, perhaps that's a moment to cultivate metta. You know, if there's a lot of agitation, perhaps a moment to cultivate more calmness. It says, if it still arises, take your attention elsewhere. So you're taking your attention to something that is not involved in the unskillful state, something that is not shaded by it. It says, if it still arises, press your tongue against the roof of your mouth and don't go there. <laughs> and then he says, if it still arises, ask for help. The actual words that he says in the pressing your tongue against the mouth is to crush it down. Yes. This is what he says. For those who want to know, this is a sutta called the Veda Vitika Sutta, which is the two types of thought. Uh, it's in the Majjhima I think it's about 40-something uh, number in the Majjhima but it's easy to find. It's just two types of thought. I think it's between 19 <coughs> and 24. Could be. <laughs> We'll have this discussion later. <laughs> um, but, but clearly, you know, what, what the Buddha is suggesting here is not a one-dimensional approach, no? Uh, also recognizing, you know, the, indeed the stubborn nature of many of these mental states and parts. I think it's very, I personally find that this very illuminating, you know, because it's not just saying, you know, plow your way through it, you know, endure it. It's actually suggesting a sense of, of, you know, a kind of like, a kind of creativity. What will work? So, you know, what will be effective in one difficult mental state might not be effective in another. Hmm? I mean, there's such, there's such variance. Um, but it's, it's good to have a few tools in your toolbox. Um, I think many of the Brahmavahara practices are practices you warm up to, you know, so I, I wouldn't expect, you know, sort of instant outcomes. Um, but dryness is always a, a kind of a little bit of an alertness bell. And sometimes, you know, really, I, I really want to encourage you not to forget about the interwoven nature of the Brahmaviharas, you know. And my own sense is sometimes if there's dryness, don't push it. Go back, perhaps, to meta. 
where there's where, and and somewhere where there's where the, uh, unhesitating sense of metta, then come back to mudita. So it's almost like the Brahma Viharas. I mean, I think you almost play them like a scale, hmm? not in an agitated fashion. But you know, you, you recognize the the kind of tenor quality of when it's kind of quite you're quite there. It feels quite heart heartfelt commitment, which doesn't mean there's emotion present. But it does mean that there is actually a genuine sense of, you know, a warm attending, including within mudita. It's a warm attending. So sometimes it's, it's useful to go back to metta would be my suggestion. Let me try and respond to that. Um, Yes, it is a perspective. The Buddha was a pragmatist. Um, In a way, he's not interested in metaphysical building. He's not uh, interested in the kind of stuff, actually, that's gone on in the history of philosophy for years and centuries and centuries and centuries, both East and West. What he's interested in is, in adopting particular approaches, does it work? Yeah. But that pragmatism is founded on, and I'll just make this final comment, is founded on uh, a, a primary psychology of trying to understand how the human mind works. And if there's been any focus for the Buddhist traditions over two and a half thousand years, and certainly it's there in the early tradition, it's you know, par, par excellence, it's, um, it's the psychological dimensions of experience coupled with ethical action. And even the ethics are psychological that the Buddha talks about. So it's really probing that and the pragmatism of, you know, actually it's interesting with the question that was just asked. You know, it's actually, how does it work? Well, actually, if you're finding that the, meta, the mudita is dry, go back a few steps, experiment, see if that works, see if that warms up something. Um, the answer to the previous question where uh, Christine was referring to this particular sutta, the two types of thought, a lot of experimentation, but all based on a profound psychology, a psychology of process, actually, uh, within it. So it's not interested in metaphysical underpinnings. Truth it sits very unhelpfully, actually, in Buddhist terms. Um, there is no desire to find truth, as we would have, say, done in, in Western thought, over the centuries. It's not there in it. And it's certainly not the same as it was in ancient India either. 
Let me try and correct the thing. First of all, the first thing is the Buddha didn't speak Pali. Yeah. Pali, in a sense, is a, an attempt to report the Buddha's speech. Uh, the Buddha would have probably spoken something called Magadhi, which was the area of northeast India where he operated, um, the area of Magadha. This was being composed of lots and lots of distant dialects in the different regions of this quite large area, which actually, for those who know the geography of India, encompasses the state of Bihar and vast parts of the state of Uttar Pradesh and little bits of, of southern Nepal. So it's that whole area he operated within. So his primary language would have been Magadhi. Pali, actually, is, a, is um, a contraction of something which in Pali is called Pali Basa. Uh, Pali Basa means the language of the texts. The of the texts. That's right. So this was an attempt to preserve the Buddha's teaching. Um, and when you go through the Pali language, when you actually look at these texts, you'll find lots of dialect words within it. So it's an attempt to homogenize all the dialects that were around in the time of the Buddha and to make them in a form which was um, initially um, orally assimilable by the monks and nuns so, so that they could repeat it. The next process was writing down. The writing down didn't occur till the end of the first century of the first century BCE, right on the cusp of the Christian era. It was written down in Sri Lanka for various reasons, which were mainly trouble with Tamil invasions of Sri Lanka at that particular period of time. These texts were then later translated into some Sanskritic versions. Yeah. They found their way into Sanskrit translations. Now, the Buddha was very clear. I might make this point for those who are interested in the languages. The Buddha was asked at one point, this is in the Vinaya, which is the decode of the discipline, the monks and nuns. He was asked whether they should compose their texts and speak in Sanskrit. And the Buddha says, absolutely not. Because Sanskrit was the language of the intellectuals. Pali is close to spoken languages. It's very close to vernacular languages. Yeah. Uh, and so the Buddha was very concerned that his teaching was conveyed always in a vernacular language, not in an intellectual language, which Sanskrit represented. So by the time they started to transcribe these texts and actually start to then compose texts in Sanskrit, they're actually going against the tenor of the Buddha's teaching by this period. And then you get this whole development within Mahayana Buddhism, which is actually the composition of, of texts in Sanskrit. And the eventual drifting away from the people. And that accounts partly for the decline of Buddhism in India. Yeah, yeah I might add that Pali was never really a spoken language. It became the lingua franca, in a sense, of the Theravada community around about the 5th century and was used by monks in Sri Lanka, Burma, and Thailand as a way of communicating and obviously overcoming the differences in their own personal languages. So that is the only way it was spoken, more as a way of intellectually communicating uh, with it amongst peoples. The other thing that was interesting about it, it never had a script. 
So every time it's been written down, it's taken on the script of the country which it's gone to. So when I learned my Sanskrit, when I learned my Pali originally, I learned it in Sinhalese script. Um, because it was, um, when it was conveyed to Sri Lanka, it was written down in Sinhalese in their script. So when it went to Thailand, it was written down in Thai script. In Burma, it was written down in Burmese script. And when it came to the West in 1881, um, when they founded the Pali Text Society, it was written down in Romanized script as well. So all of, you know, all of the um, Pali Text Society documents that you'll find are all in Romanized script. That's a little potted history of Pali. The Buddha presented a lot of roadmaps. A lot of roadmaps for basically understanding the world of experience and its construction. Um, dependent arising or dependent origination, Paticca Samuppada, it is one of the central roadmaps because it is such an elegant portrayal in a way of the kind of circular nature of world construction and the creation and recreation of dukkha in ways that is very understandable and very penetrable. Um, I think it was the second, second discourse. Right? There was a second discourse, second teaching given by the Buddha because I think, you know, to really study it and to really understand it, it's like you see your mind in it so clearly, step by step. It's a roadmap that describes the way in which suffering is created, or dukkha is created and recreated. But it's also a very clear roadmap of liberation, of bringing that circular, the circular pathways really to stillness and to an end. And in many ways, when you look at the roadmap of Paticca Samapada, you actually see the whole, almost pretty much the whole of the teaching held within it. That would be my sense. I actually personally consider dependent origination to be one of the most important teachings in the whole of the Buddhist canon. Um, and this is not just me. This is actually within, I think, if you look at the Pali canon, you'll see, for example, that... Dependent origination was the content of the Buddha's awakening experience. This is what he saw. You know, so much so if you if you go to uh, a text which is known as the Udana, which is a very ancient text, the first three suttas in the text say this is the content of the Buddha's awakening. Dependent origination in forward order, dependent origination in reverse order, dependent origination in forward and reverse order, <laughs> and it's kind of making the point: this is the really, really big discovery. Uh, it's a huge thing. I mean, it's, um, well, we actually teach whole courses just on dependent origination. You know, we could have done a week's course, for example, like this, just on dependent origination. It is that profound. It's that difficult to understand. It's that difficult to penetrate. Uh, and a classic discourse, which is, um, which is known as the Mahanadana Sutta, in this particular discourse, Ananda, who's the cousin of the Buddha and is also his close disciple, uh, Ananda says to the Buddha one day, he says, um, Lord, he says, this dependent origination seems as clear as clear to me. 
And the Buddha says, think again, Ananda. (laughs) (laughs) This dependent origination is profound. And when the Buddha says something is profound, it means it's really difficult. (laughs) Now, I want to just highlight something about that. The The difficulty isn't intellectual. The difficulty is actually to see it in operation. Yeah. I think Ananda in this particular case represents everyone. We all go, yeah, dependent origination, got it. <laughs> you know, and actually we don't, because the real depth of dependent origination is not to be found in intellectually understanding, but actually observing it in our experience, and particularly actually something we've already talked about this evening and Christina mentioned, which is the relationship between contact, feeling, craving, attachment, becoming. If you just get that portion of the chain itself, you're doing well. (laughs) But it's a really, really in-depth teaching. I think it's the most profound teaching in in the Buddha's repertoire. If I, if I could pray through the question a little. Um, uh, in a sensing with more mindfulness, you know, that some of these qualities like mudita and appreciation are more present, more joy in life, but also matched by a certain disappointment. Um, and if I'm getting your question right, the, the ways in which particularly people close to you I think this is what you're talking about. People close to you, like family, are kind of not really seeing you or seeing those changes or very contracted in their own stories, their own isolations or whatever. So then feeling a little bit disappointed and a bit kind of like, 
isolated. Is that? Yeah, that people, I find that people that I'm close to that I are, are very walled off. Yeah. Worlds. Yeah. People. That people can be very walled off in their own world, own world, particularly people close to you. Well, welcome to the club. I mean, it would be wonderful as you change that everybody reciprocally changed around you, which is just not happening. It's just not happening. I mean, and, and you know, one really needs to be, I think, find some grace within this, you know, that all, all beings change in their own ways, their own rhythms, and their own motivations, and some don't so easily. You know, after doing this for actually more than 40 years, um, my parents haven't got a clue what I do. (laughs) When are you going to get a proper job? Well, yeah, I get comments like that. When am I going to get a proper job? Donna doesn't put dinner on the table. Um, In fact, my, my father's, one of my father's pearls was, you know, I've talked about practice. I actually don't talk about it very much. You know, I've talked about practice occasionally, that people come to practice. And, and he says, well, you've been practicing for 40 years. You mustn't be very good at it. He <laughs> says, if you're still practicing, still having to practice. So, you know, what do you do? You know, I mean, I think it, there is something about kind of just that quality of acceptance, you know, that people at times have their own reasons for not wanting to understand where you are. Sometimes that, because, you know, sometimes change is very threatening at times for people. Or people inhabit very, very different worlds. You know, and I think always, you know, I think in this tradition, I mean, there's a grace around accepting that. You know, but I think then what's really important for balancing, because so much emphasis in this teaching is placed upon keeping good company. You know? And, and there's one place, I think, where the Buddha says, you know, that, that if you were only to associate with the unwise, it's a little bit like, uh, like uh, cooking... A, how does he put it? The, the soup that you only the ladle doesn't forget I use find it <laughs> I use it one has to really find one's places of connection and understanding and intimacy and sangha sangha good friends kalyanamitas as John met, mentioned the other night and you know, in some ways those are so important to have those dear to you um, and it actually can allow a little grace for, you know, accommodating all of the fears and locked inness and closeness, even of those dear to us, who, who, that's where they are. You know, and and actually within that, of course, we can see places of goodness and places of care and love and those we have much mudita for. And we have much willingness to stand near to the places that feel very close down.
said about mana. Uh, John, you said mana is not easily accessible, and Christina, you said something like you can only spot the symptoms of it. Yeah. And I wrote in the margin, why not? It's probably <laughs> self-evident, but can you just re-explain re that, why it's not so accessible? I think because it's not a mental state, it's not an emotion, because it is something so positional rather than, you know, almost un pretty unconsciously positional, rather than something that you, you necessarily can hold so clearly in sati. So, I mean, sometimes you can, not, that's not always true. You know, because sometimes you can be very clear of that kind of surge of, you know, who do you think you are? Or, you know, I'm the crumpled kind of fearful mana. So sometimes the positioning is very, is very obvious. But actually the way in which mana manifests is through, through I think it has emotional manifestations and tendency manifestations. But mana's behind it. But how do you bring mana forth as a thing? Because it's not, it's so amorphous, in a way. In contrast to what? What's more accessible? I can feel a sensation in my hand. In a, I can feel that. I, I can very easily recognize an emotion arising and really know it and kind of have a vocabulary for it. You know, and a way of kind of investigating it, its process, it, its impact. You know, I can know a thought in the same way. You know, I can see a thought appearing and kind of really know it as a thought in its different shades and flavorings. Mana, it's a little sneakier. It's a little sneakier, I would say. It's it's behind so many layers. That's more maybe true. It's behind so many layers that actually sometimes we do see it very, very clearly. But some of it is such a habitual positioning. You know, it, there's not always a lot of movement in mana, would you say? Mm -hmm. I, mean, I don't think there's that much movement in it. You know, because like if I feel kind of less than you, this is probably going to be a very historical positioning. So you take it as a given? Take it as a no. given. Take it as a given. Ice cream can come and go. Yeah. It's, it's almost part of your internal narrative structure. And I mean, the way it's described in the texts, in particular commentarial texts, is that mana is the most subtle manifestation of self. So even when you think you've dealt with it, there will be a situation when it will rise again, when you get, get that tinge of you know, feeling a little bit better or feeling a little bit worse. You know, night might, might not be big, but it's still there. Yeah. So it's considered to be the most subtlest of the manifestations of self, which is why it's so difficult to eradicate, because it is sneaky, I think, as Christina said. You know, it kind of every time you think you've got it, you know, it's gone again, and it hides, and it pops up again. Yeah, <laughs> thought you got me. <laughs> <laughs> But if you look at some of the, like these map, awakening maps, you know, say if, like if you take the awakening maps of the Arya development, you know, Sotapanasakigami, Anagami, Arahant, you know, and actually one of the ways that that's described, you know, it's a kind of, it's almost like peeling away layers, 
You know, that's one perspective on it. You know, like you're peeling away layers of camouflage, actually. Layers of camouflage. And, you know, as you peel away those layers, mana's that very subtle layer, you know, right underneath many of those grosser, more evident layers. Of course, I mean, that's one perspective on that map, you know, it's about what falls away. I mean, it's very important that the other perspective on that map is actually what comes into being and, you know, assumes a place of, of confidence and, and stability. My sense in terms of the kind of effort we bring to practice is that there's a, a, very, a very wonderful kind of marriage, which I think is very important. And I, you know, and I, I think it's composed of agency and receptivity, if I put it in those terms. You know, there's many ways that we bring agency into the practice in terms of wise efforts, you know, cultivations, restraint, you know, this in a way is all within the domain of what I would refer to as agency. And I think the, the balancing or the other side of that is also this quality of receptivity or listening. And I think they are very necessary companions to each other. You know, because agency, its kind of shadow side is overdoing, it's trying to control, its shadow side can be striving, forcing. Um, you know, clearly the shadow side of receptivity can be a sort of drifty spaciness. Um, but that capacity for receptivity to actually listen, listen inwardly, rather than telling the story, almost to, to listen to the story that our body is telling us, you know, to, to listen to, to what is going on in the mind. I think, I think it's a very beautiful interweave, I think both are necessary. And sometimes people find, you know, in their practice they tend to be weighed one way more than the other. You know, one person may be overweighed in terms of agency, you know, um, figuring it all out, being on top of it all. Another person might find that they're, they're weighed a little bit too much towards receptivity, and so there's a sense that kind of things just sort of drift along, you know. Um, but, you know, I think we need to spot within ourselves where the balances and the imbalances are. But for me, they're both very important components of, of wise effort. I'll just say a couple of things. <clears throat> One of the things that's required of, the, of somebody who listens, and I think this is the opposite of what we normally do, and I'll speak a little bit about that, is that we become, in a sense, as cleared as possible in order to receive. Um, and I'm sure we've all had the experience, and probably still do have the experience, of arguing with what is being said before it's even been said. 
Yeah. You get into the argument, you hear the few words, and you're there in the, you know, you've gone for the jugular already of what's being said before you've actually really, really heard the whole exposition. Now, as you saw from the map of what I gave, and you're talking about the very early start of the course, um, of the retreat, was that you know, the first stage is listening, the second is reasoning. But you have to hear, first of all. In other words, you have to kind of hear the story in order then to subject it to the kind of rigor perhaps you want to do at too early a stage before you've really hold, heard the whole thing. And sometimes we don't even really begin to understand it until, until we've begin, begun to try to cultivate it a little bit. You know? And actually the cultivation will give you more food for being able to look at it a lot more closely. So this is not, this is not a block, as I think Christina made very clear at one point in the course, uh, to anything that's being said being questioned. That's not the point. You know, the whole point about listening is actually hear what's being said first of all. In our cases, a lot of, a lot of the time it's reading it. Read it, you know, absorb it. If you read a sutta, uh, reading a sutta is not like reading a novel. You, know, you kind of read a few lines and then you sit and let it, you know, let it sit with you to see how, it's, you, know, how, it's, um, you, know, how you assimilate it, uh, if at all. Then you can come into a questioning relationship with it once you've begun to you know, kind of uh, go through it very slowly. So it's, it, you know, this listening process is, you know, um, again, I think I gave you uh, examples of the bucket being turned upside down, the bucket with holes. Well, this is the bucket that's perfectly okay. It can be filled and then can be used to fill something else as well. And you do this in this kind of reasoning process. You know, tipping it from one bucket to another you know, to see if it stands and you know, literally holds uh, in your experience. The touchstone is always in the end your experience, but the listening process is absolutely vital in this. And this is one of the things, I mean, when I first started, and perhaps Christina did as well, when I first started with um, Tibetans in India, um, this was something where I went weeks through, the quality of the listener, you know, um, which was considered to be incredibly important, the qualities that were required to listen to the material in order to engage with it and then um, move forward. I actually say this quality of listening is vitally important just in interpersonal relationships as well. The quality to clear yourself a little bit out of the way in order to really receive the other, uh, let alone in the teaching. I think it's just such a vital skill in interpersonal relationships. You know, to really hear the other's story. Um, sometimes we're trying to, even with best friends, you know, when they've got a dilemma going on for them, trying to solve their problem before they've finished telling us it. Yeah. You're jumping in, trying to do everything here. It's to try and become as much of a cleared space for the receptivity as possible. And then you can move in genuine, um, genuine responsiveness towards what's being offered. Well, we have run out of time again. <laughs> and uh, I just want to thank you again for your days of listening, of your attentiveness to what is, and your engagement uh, uh, throughout the day. And yeah, really, we have furniture. Furniture moving to do, yes. Mm -hmm.